0: During March 2018 the British Nigerian historian, BAFTA award-winning presenter and filmmaker David Olisoga visited the National Museum of Scotland as part of the BBC's Civilisations Festival. Inspired by Kenneth Clark's groundbreaking series from 1969, BBC2's current series Civilisations introduces a new generation to great masterworks of beauty and ingenuity. In this talk, David Olasoga, one of the three presenters of this new series, asks, can TV still do that magical thing of bringing people to a place where they believe history and art is for them? Uh, First of all, apologies for standing here and doing my emails while you've been coming in, but I'll get anywhere I can get Wi-Fi. I will take the opportunity of using it, so forgive me for that. I'll talk for a moment, and then I thought I'd show you the introduction film that we've made to showcase the series. But first of all, thank you very much for inviting me here to your museum and to your city. I was brought up in Newcastle upon time, so this is where we came for our summer holidays, to Edinburgh, so it's, <laughs> it's, very, it's very nice to be back. Um, it's an honor to be here, but it's a, also an honor to have taken part in the series Civilizations. And so, Let's begin, as I say, by showing um, the showreel that we produced about just what an incredible phenomena this new series is, and it's an incredible phenomena because it's part of a tradition that I want to talk about, which I think is in itself special and worthy of celebration. So if we can play the first clip, please. It's obvious why I'd feel excited to be part of that. The series is obviously, it's part of a tradition that began 50 years ago. It was 49 years ago that Kenneth Clark famously and very wisely did exactly what I was trying to do on Start the Week this Monday, which is dodge the question, what is civilization? What Clark did, he asked himself that question. And he said, with Notre Dame Cathedral behind him, over his left shoulder, he said, I don't know, but I think I can recognize, recognize it when I see it. Now, of course, Clark did know a lot about the idea of civilization, which is perhaps why he was tiptoeing around its definition. It's a concept, it's a question that's probably best sidestepped because it's difficult. The fact that most people who've seriously thought about the idea of civilization at most points in history have found the concept complicated, difficult, uncomfortable, that makes it so interesting. And the people who've been certain about the concept of civilization and the meaning of that word, they've tended to be some of the most dangerous people in history. People who are confident in deciding that they are civilised and others aren't are often the people you want to keep some distance from. Because there's nothing simple about the concept. It's one of those words we think we all think we understand it right up to the moment someone asks you to define it. And if you add the words, the prefix Western, to the word civilization, you're in a whole other world of trouble with new problems. One of the problems is that it was commonplace just a hundred years ago to think of civilization as a singular phenomenon that had a single source, perhaps ancient Greece, perhaps somewhere in the fertile, fertile crescent. The view that multiple civilizations emerged around the world at various times for various reasons, an idea that were usually comfortable with today, hasn't always been the way people have thought. It wasn't an idea that many Victorian thinkers had much time for. In the age of the European empires, the concept of civilization, the concept that there was only a singular civilization that had a single source, that Europe was connected to its source via this golden thread all the way back to Rome, to Greece, to Egypt, That idea was the idea behind the civilizing mission, the idea that was used to justify the domination of other peoples. It's difficult to work out what we mean by civilization. It's really easy to work out what we think about its opposites. Barbarism, savagery, what people used to call rather quaintly rudeness. They're all toxic. As Simon Sharma brilliantly says, in what I think, and I am very biased obviously, in the brilliant opening sequence to this series, what Simon says is that we suddenly find we do have an instinctual understanding of the concept of civilization the moment its opposite turns up. We know that civilisation isn't the murder of an 82-year-old archaeologist. We know that civilization is somehow invested in stone columns when we see them being wrapped in military explosives and being destroyed. And yet, despite the clarity we suddenly feel when we watch the destruction of Palmyra, there's a risk that I've found that when you start talking about civilization and its relationship to art, about how civilization is, in one definition, invested within art, that you start sounding like you're saying, I don't know much about civilization, but I know what I like. And it's obvious, and it's unquestionably true, that civilization isn't just art. It's also obviously law, it's medicine, it's commerce, it's science, it's trade, it's lots of things. But by looking at the story of civilization and the story of the idea of civilization through art is one way of telling a very big and I think very important story about us. And I think when you combine that desire to look at civilization through art, through and with the medium of television, you create something, I think, special and something that in this country is part of a tradition that Kenneth Clarke began 50 years ago. In the late 60s, Clarke even further dodged the question by creating a firewall between him and the difficulties of defining civilization by calling his series a personal view. And he's because he was aware, he was aware that it's a dangerous concept to go near, so dangerous that you might ask, why have I ventured so near it recently? But the one small certainty that Clark had was that the elusive meaning of civilization, what it really means, part of that answer can be found in art, and it was by sticking to that principle that he created something incredible. I've been working in TV for about, well, in the media for about 20 years, and a lot of us who make TV programs have a bad habit of using the word landmark a bit too freely and a bit too readily. And I've written recently that I've made a few projects that at the time I have kind of gone home on an evening and convinced myself that I was involved in the creation of a television landmark <laughs> and got a bit overexcited. And looking back, I was making what I think I hope is kind of good television programs. There are a few landmarks, and the landmark of all landmarks, the mother of all landmarks, the landmarks that, history, that TV people sit around the campfire and talk about in legendary hushed tones is, of course, Kenna Clark's civilization. And that's not to say the series isn't without flaws. I think the series was special. I really hope we've made something in its tradition. But it wasn't a perfect series. That patrician confidence with which Clark delivered his piece to cameras, that as, as we call them in the trade, was on one level very reassuring. A lot of commentators who've written about the new series and written about this tradition have said they missed Clark's breezy confidence or overconfidence, depending on how you want to see it. But others have noticed that his kind of blithe dismissal of other cultures and his focus on the achievements of what he called Western man can, be, can feel troubling. A lot of people were troubled about, by it in the late 60s. The truth is that Clark's worldview and his cultural tastes were old-fashioned even for 1969. One of the great ironies about Kenneth Clark is that a few years after he made Civilizations, he had this epiphany where he suddenly got Picasso. We've been asked why we haven't made a series that's more like Civilization. Well, Kenneth Clark, by the late 70s, wouldn't have made a series like Civilization because he was not uncritically in love with Picasso. He had, he'd had this epiphany. So, ironically, the Clark of the late 60s was a very different person to the Clark that we lost in the, in the 1980s. But in that series, which is, only represents a tiny fraction of his television work, not to mention his huge output, of books and journalism, but in that series, he was wedded to the great history approach to art and history, the great man approach, sorry, and he was unwilling to see that there were any women artists who were great enough to warrant inclusion in his series. It was also famously narrow in its geographical focus, but I'll come back to that later. Because for all its criticisms that you can make, civilization is a legend, and Rightly so, but with all legends, there's a certain degree of of mythology. The series wasn't a hit immediately. That's been forgotten. Its initial initial viewing figures were not great. If we'd matched them, I wouldn't be here in front of you today. I'd be hiding somewhere in a cabin. Many people who talk about remembering watching civilizations go out are actually misremembering. What they're remembering are the repeats. Remember, the BBC used to be rather infamous for repeats. Very few people watched it go out in 1969. Many, many more people watched the repeats in the early 70s. That was partly because the take-up of colour television increased exponentially after civilisations, and we shouldn't forget, as David Attenborough has been very frank in admitting, the series was commissioned in 1967 in order to sell color television sets and to sell the idea of color television. It's very odd to think that color television was seen as radical and a bit tacky in the late 60s. It had been wheeled out in America where they'd ramped up the contrast and the colors and they covered it in those sort of awful adverts you saw on Mad Men. It had a really bad name. It was seen as American and a bit cheap and nasty. So. Kenneth Clark was the solution to the people trying to sell colour televisions. Kenneth Clark was going to rehabilitate colour and show that it could be tasteful, that it could it could do it wasn't that American, it wasn't that tacky, it didn't have to all be adverts. Because the series was special, we've forgotten that it was actually commissioned for these rather kind of less prosaic reasons. The success, though, even though it was eventual, it took some time, it wasn't immediate, the success of the series is really unlikely. This is a 13-hour series on European art and culture, presented by an upper-class semi-aristocratic art historian with clipped vowels, tweed suits, and bad teeth. (laughs) I spend quite a lot of my time trying to pitch television programs to people who have the money, the commissioners. That's quite a hard sell even for the late 60s. So it was a remarkable success. But its real success isn't just in viewing figures. Its real success was that it did the thing that I'm talking about today, that it changed people's lives. And the stories of its impact are legendary, and I'm sure some people in this room were impacted by the series and remember it as part of their lives. Its reception, both in the UK and the US, are part of TV legends. The BBC had only introduced colour two years earlier. Um, Only a small number of people had um, colour sets. This was a series that was filmed on 117 locations. It was lavishly shot on 35mm film, which was the medium used, still used, um, in some places for feature film. It was so such a big deal that people held civilisations parties. If you had a colour TV and you wanted to show off a bit, you invite people around to watch civilisations. The only other time I've ever heard of that happening was when the Sopranos was big in the States. A civilizations party with Kenneth Clark seems a harder sell to your friends, but that's what people did. As Clark's biographer, James Staughton has written, there were parish churches in rural Britain who rescheduled evening song because they didn't want to force their parishioners to have to make that terrible choice between God and Kenneth Clark. <laughs> who wants to be in that position? During the three months of the transmission of those thirteen episodes in 1969, curators and directors at art galleries and museums noted an increase in what today we call footfall. There was a huge, unprecedented surge of interest in the arts that swept the country. It later swept the world because that summer there was reports of a mini-boom in tourism. Remember, this is before EasyJet and so there are other cheap airlines. I should say this is the BBC before the uh, budget airline revolution, I should call it. People who'd seen works of art, introduced, brought into their living rooms by Kenneth Clark, suddenly worked out that if they wanted to invest the money, they could jet off. They could go to the Louvre. They could go to the Uffizi. They could go and see the things that Kenneth Clark had introduced to them. They had, in the modern terminology, they had been empowered to become culture tourists. The impact of the series also spread beyond these shores. It was broadcast in 60 other countries. Arguably, it was more successful and more impactful in America than it was in Britain. Its reception there was euphoric. Clark was was greeted as a rock star when he went to America to promote the series that was then on PBS, Public Service Broadcasting, in the States. A one public viewing. Clark was so overwhelmed by the response of the American Republic that he reportedly had to run into the cloakroom and wept for 15 minutes. Nine separate individuals on various, at various times wrote to Clark, and those letters were found by his biographer, to explain to him that they had been on the verge of suicide and they had watched civilization and they decided that there was something to live for but no pressure on this series. (laughs) I'm afraid I've made programs about the First World War, slavery, and colonial genocide. I fear I may have pushed some people in the opposite (laughs) direction, so. The journalist Boyd Tonkin wrote last year in The Independent that any producer or presenter landed with the mission of making this new series deserves both envy and pity. I've had a bit of both. The series made Kenneth Clark a a household name. it launched BBC Two. It reaffirmed, I should say, BBC Two's place in the cultural life of Britain that I think it still holds, right at the centre of British cultural life. It was an incredible achievement by any measure, and behind it was not just the knowledge and the authority of Kenneth Clarke. There was also the incredible directing abilities of Michael Gill, the father of the late and missed A. A. Gill, the TV critic. But also the genius of David Attenborough, who commissioned the series when he was then controller of BBC Two. The tie-in book that went with the series sold more than a million copies globally, many of them in the US. And Civilizations became a a phenomenon, not just a TV series, but it was a phenomenon. but it was not an aberration, it was not unique. It demonstrated what David Attenborough very cleverly and astutely hoped that it could demonstrate not just that it's worth going out and buying a colour television, but that TV can do art and culture. That TV, this medium, that in the sort of 60s had become contaminated with being seen as cheap and American and not high culture. That this brash, relatively young medium could do big subjects. Civilization was, in that sense, it was one of the genesis events of what I call the age of the landmarks, the age of those big, defining television series. In 1979, sorry, 1972, three years later, Alastair Cook made his series America, which is still a brilliant series. The year after that, Jacob Bronowski, the wonderful genius Jacob Bronowski, brought us another series many people will remember watching, The Ascent of Man. The tradition of the big art series was updated in 1972 by John Berger in his famous series Ways of Seeing. Mary's program on tonight is in some ways a homage to some of the ideas that she remembered watching in Berger's series. And a few years after that, Robert Hughes took on the modernist movements that Clark had not invested very much time in, in civilization in his brilliant series, The Shock of the New, which was broadcast in 1980. A year before that, David Attenborough himself had given up the desk job at BBC Two and gone back in front of the, com- the camera for Life on Earth, another one of those great, giant landmark series that defined what television could do in the 70s and into the 80s. In natural history programming, the age of the landmarks has never come to an end. Those big co-produced, projects like Blue Planet and Blue Planet 2, they just keep coming, partly because they are co-produced, and the vast amount of money needed to be to make them can be generated from across the world. In art and history, the sort of big, giant, dinosaur, monster series like Civilization are pretty rare. Our new series has nine episodes, which is really, really rare. I don't... I think I'll live to see another 13-part art series on BBC Two. Growing up, when I was a kid, I grew up in Newcastle upon Tyne, not very far um, south of the border from here. The books that accompanied those series, they were on our family bookshelves. I saw them on the bookshelves of my friends alongside you know copies of Clark's Civilization, Life on Earth. The Ascent of Man. These were the big books that you bought because you've been inspired by television, because you are aspirational, because TV and brilliant presenters like David Attenborough and Jacob Bronowski and Kenneth Clark had convinced millions of people quite rightly that this stuff belongs to all of us. It's not just in museums. And even if it is, museums belong to us. TV's incredible catalytic role in culture was at its strongest, its most vivid, its loudest, in that great age of the landmarks, the age that this series that we're currently broadcasting is, I hope, in in that in the tradition of. But even when viewed as part of that phenomena of the age of the landmarks, civilization still stands out. What Clark managed to do was make the sort of highest, the most intimidating, high points of European culture seem accessible to everybody. Yet the man at the center of this was wealthy, privately educated, a member of the elite by any definition. Often, I think, when I've watched the series, as I have many times over the past three years in airports, whenever I've had a, f- a few minutes, insomnia, I've watched Kenneth Clark, And very often, he looks as intimidating and imposing as the architecture and the paintings behind him, and his tweeds and his, uh, his demeanor, his, his, the way he carried himself. Now, his career, keeper of the fine arts at the, at, at the Ashmolean, surveyor of the King's Pictures, youngest ever director of the National Gallery at just 30, and Oxford dawned by his 40s. That was a stellar career, but it was because he entered into the world of television that, part that Clark's public life was available to everybody. His entire career, apart from his publishing, could have existed behind the walls of the establishment, but television made him a public figure. The reason, I think, that Kenneth Clark isn't just a figure who's the name of a a university lecture given every year in Oxford or um, a figure who you see on the shelves of second-hand bookstores. The reason I think he's still a public figure, the reason I'm standing here banging on about him, is because of television, because the power of television. It made him a public figure in a way that no other medium could. It reinvented him, and I think in a a way with civilizations he returned the favor to the medium by showing emphatically what it can do. And as one of the presenters on the new series, I feel like I've lived with the ghost of Kenneth Clark, as I said, for many years, as you might expect. I've watched and rewatched it, and to pretend not to be intimidated following its wake is dishonest. It is intimidating, and it should be intimidating. Because that tradition means a lot to a lot of people. In the three years that we've been making making the series I have repeatedly been taken aside at events I've been at or sent emails by people who've wanted to explain that watching that series in the late 60s or the early 70s when it was repeated was a, a life event. It wasn't an evening watching TV, it was a critical moment in their lives and I already knew, in theory, that this series meant a lot to people but I hadn't fully appreciated how much it had changed people's lives, opened their minds, how doors that had previously been closed had been opened by watching Clark, that interests that they hadn't previously had had been fired and, and made into lifelong passions by 13 hours of TV on BBC Two 50 years ago. Now I can't join in that, that passionate enthusiasm for Clarke's Civilization in '69 because I don't have any personal memories of it because I was born a year later but I do have my own personal story of being, being allowed to think that art could be part of my life through the medium of television. One of the reasons that I took less than a nanosecond to say yes to taking part in the series not long enough to think about how intimidating it was, was because for me, TV had played the same role that Clark's series had played in the lives of of so many people I've met and heard about. I know the date and the time of my personal epiphany. At some point between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock, on Wednesday the 12th of February 1986, I worked out that art was going to be part of my life. That mother, my mother, that evening, my mother, I'd like to think encouraged me, but probably made, thinking back, being honest. She made me watch a series on BBC Two called Artists and Models, and it changed my life. My mother did a lot of making us read, listen, or watch to things. Things were circled in the radio times. (laughs) We were expected to watch them, and there would be questions about them you could be caught out. So I watched Artists and Models on BBC Two at 9 p.m. on the 12th of February, 1986. It was written and directed by a producer called Leslie Magahay, who I've never met and who I have yet a life debt to. The first episode was about the French master of neoclassicism, Jacques-Louis David, an artist who lived through the horrible, ugly, Rococo days of the Ancien Régime, producing cherubs and ghastly... He made paintings for the, for the last of the aristocrats and who became, just in time for the revolution, the austere painter of the neo, new neoclassical style that became the style of the revolution. He was there to paint the, and never finish, the famous tennis court oath. He painted the coronation of Napoleon at Notre Dame, the same cathedral seen behind Kenneth Clarke's shoulder in the opening scenes of civilization. He was, for a while, France's greatest artist. He was the state artist of the revolution. He was almost a victim of the revolution. When the Committee for Public Safety fell, he was almost a victim of it. He was saved, it is said, from execution, because in his trial his stammer became so bad that the men who might have sent him to the guillotine began to laugh at him. I know all of this, and I care about all of this, because 30 years ago I watched a documentary on BBC Two on a Wednesday evening. Two years after I'd watched Artists and Models and having realised, even from my council-house bedroom, that art and history could be legitimate passions for me, something I had not worked out, that this stuff belonged to me, that museums are public and publicly owned, that this art is national collections, that art was going to be part of my life. Two years later, I was in the Louvre, standing in front of the paintings that I'd seen on BBC Two that Wednesday night. In the first episode of Artists and Models, there was a, a phrase that somebody, a critic had said, jokingly, about Jack Louis David's paintings. It said that they were so cold and austere that if you stood close, you could feel this icy blast coming out of the canvas from these cold rooms of the houses of the Roman aristocrats that David painted. And I remember as a teenager standing in front of the Oath of the Horatii. Imagining I could feel that icy blast, slightly high on the idea that art was for me. After the Louvre, we went to the Reich Museum. This is me and my best friend. We were 18. Interrailing. People of a certain generation will know what that means. Younger people, it's what we did before EasyJet. <laughs> I went to the Reich the Reich's Museum and I saw Rembrandt and Franz Hals and Vermeer, and I understood that. Holland wasn't just about cafés, it, it had had a golden age that they got through without cafés. Then I went to, the Madrid, to Madrid and I went to the Prado and I saw Picasso and Titian and El Greco and Velazquez and Hieronymus Bosch and I bought a, a print of Bosch's, what I think is his masterpiece, The Garden of Earthly Delights. And I pinned that reproduction to every student room I had for the next five years. I loved it. Television had given me all of that. I'd been to art galleries. I'd been taken to art galleries by my mother. I'd gone to London. I'd been to this city um, for our little cheap summer holidays. But I hadn't really got it. It had been slightly dutiful. It had been, I now have a daughter, and I I'm, can imagine what it's like taking a child to an art gallery and trying to prod them into into realising, into having that, that realisation, that epiphany, that this stuff is wonderful. Television just did that effortlessly. Television, when it's at its best, can do that for people. TV had given me the passions that remain my passions, now as a somewhat older, fast-graying TV presenter and producer. And I'm immensely grateful to TV. But there were other works of art that I didn't see on television that also fired my imagination when I was young. The other place that my mother would take her mixed-race half-African children was to the British Museum, and we'd stand in front of the Benin Bronzes, because my mother was determined that her half-African children would appreciate both sides of their heritage, and that they would appreciate that their father's ancestors, not just their mother's ancestors, produced great works of art. Now, I don't recall ever seeing the art of Africa on television, as a kid, back in the 80s. And if I'd been around in 1969, I certainly wouldn't have seen it in civilization. Kenneth Clark's series has been criticized for being Eurocentric. That's ridiculous. It was far more narrowly focused than that. (laughs) Filming took place in just 11 countries. The new series has been filmed in 31 countries. Remember, Clark had 13 episodes. We have nine. Clark spent most of his time discussing France and Italy, Germany probably comes in third, Britain doesn't really get much of a look in until the latter episodes. Spain is completely omitted, there is no Spanish art at all in civilization. This was uh, an oversight, Clark actually struggled to keep uh, down to his 13 episodes, so he made a decision to drop the art of Spain, a decision which bordered on becoming a diplomatic incident when the series was finally broadcast across Europe. Clarke was seen as having delivered a national insult to Spain, as you will notice if you watch the series, Simon, myself, and uh, Mary have all been to Spain. <laughs> we have ruffled feathers to smooth down. I dream one day of retiring to Spain, so I can't take any risks there. <laughs> However, in 1969, Clark left out not just Spain, all of Africa, all of Asia, Oceania, South America, Central America—completely absent, completely missing. Now, Clark was criticised this for the time. At the time, you will—there's a sort of risk that we start thinking that Clark was. Um, it's only now that we'll criticise Clark for, for this. This is because we live in a PC age, 50 years later. Clark was criticised in the 60s for having been very narrowly focused. However, we can't judge Clark on one series, even one that is 13 hours long, because he made many other TV programmes and he wrote a number of books, and in those books he does discuss the art of Spain. He was a champion of Japanese art. You can't judge Clark by that single series. But it was really clear right from the outset that we wanted to make a series that was much, much more global. And that's because television's changed and the audience has changed and the culture that we live in has changed. Many people who watch Civilization, and I really hope as well as you watching our series, that you will also take the opportunity on the iPlayer BBC.co.uk, to, to look at Clark's series, which is now again available on the iPlayer. Because one thing that a lot of people who have watched it again recently have noted is it's extremely, at moments, pessimistic, especially at the beginning, especially at the end of the final episode. And that's a reflection of Clark's genuine fear of living at the, one of the darkest moments in the Cold War. The pessimism of the Cold War, the The fact that everyone was living under the fear of mutually assured destruction does come across in the series. Because, like all works of art, it's it's a product of its time. It's a reflection of its time. You cannot make a television program or write a book without the times in which you live seeping through the keyboard or through the camera into what you're producing. I think it's entirely true of the series we've made. It's a reflection of our times. And what is the biggest issue of our times? It is that the world is becoming ever more global in ways that are wonderful, in ways that are frightening, in ways that we don't seem to be able to control. What was the big issue around Brexit? It was immigration. What was the issue that defined the Italian elections of this week? And I, the the result of those elections, it was immigration, migration. These are all features of globalization. We have instinctively, without really realizing it, we've made a series that just as much as Clark's series reflects the big issue of our time, the globalization of our lives. But that we didn't do that out of some sort of dutiness, we did it instinctively, we did it joyously. Clark couldn't have made this series even if he'd wanted to. He couldn't, for example, have done what Mary Beard did and went and looked at the terracotta uh, army because they hadn't been unearthed. He couldn't have looked at the arts of the Eastern Bloc, because he couldn't have got access to go to those countries. His narrowness of focus was partly because that's what he was asked to do by David Attenborough. and I've never been asked to do anything by David Attenborough. I'd certainly do what I was told if I was. (laughs) But it's also a reflection of of the other aspect of the Cold War that we tend to forget, which is it locked people into certain parts of the world. It was an insular time compared to our, our age. So we have made a series that reflects our time and the globalism of our time. But it's not just more geographically uh, broad in its scope. I mean, there is an S on the end, as I hope you noticed. Um, It's also chronologically far broader. Clark began in the 5th century with the fall of Rome and didn't really venture very much up into the 20th century. We begin 40,000 years ago with Simon's stunning, again, unbiased, exploration of the first marks made by human beings on the walls of their caves. As an historian whose first interest is empire and the global encounters that have been a defining feature of the past half millennia, that globalism comes naturally and instinctively to me. It's what I love. I'm interested in what happens when people encounter one another. What I've really loved doing in this series is to do something that I don't think any other medium can do, which is to use television to look at art that we think of as being characteristically and specifically of one culture and showing that within its DNA, are the strands of globalism and encounter. I've loved looking at the way, for example, Art of the Dutch Golden Age has subtly encoded within it the globalism of the 17th century. We think about Johannes Vermeer's paintings, those wonderful Dutch calm interiors of a woman reading a letter, or a man and a woman flirting. But if you look again at the objects on the table, look at the globes, the rugs from Persia, the crockery from China, the globalism is there, its thumbprint of the first age of globalisation is there within those paintings, the hat that the officer wears when he talks to the flirts, to the lady in that beautiful Dutch interior is made from North American beaver fur. The blue, shiny, beautiful blue and white bowls on the tables have been brought by the Dutch East India Company from China. Vermeer, we think, never left the Netherlands, but his, his worldview was global. And when we think about the art that was produced by one of one of the Dutch East India Company's trading partners, the art of Japan, it again is a vast, wonderful, uh, exquisite depiction of the excitement of contact. As I said, I've made programmes about slavery and about colonial genocide and about what can happen and what did happen when cultures encountered one another and there was a mismatch of power or there were ideologies that led to terrible <laughs> events. And we often aren't, aren't good enough sometimes at, at looking at the fact that it's not always like that. I'm, I'm, I was called in The Guardian two weeks ago one of the most miserable men that a journalist had ever heard speak and I, I, I won't contest that, but when, I, when it comes to those earlier ages, before the 19th century, before the age of European imperialism, there are amazing moments of encounter that in this series I get the chance to, to celebrate and hopefully redeem myself and be called only a, a marginally miserable man in The Guardian <laughs> next year. One of the arts that we look at is the art of Japan. and I want to show you a clip in the moment. There's a form of art which is not in this clip, which is a 16th, 17th century form of art, art called nambam screens, which are Japanese folding screens that are used to divide rooms. And the nambam screens were, were a celebration of the Japanese excitement at their encounter with the, du- the Portuguese and then the Dutch empires. This is art of encounter, art of international trade and globalisation, but this is from the Japanese point of view. You can see this within these Nambam screens. You can also see it in the word Nambam screen. Nambam means southern barbarian, unfortunately, and by southern barbarian they mean Europeans because Europeans always came from the south because they were coming from their trading bases in India and China, and barbarian because of the Japanese view on European eating habits and table manners and personal hygiene. Even now in Japan, you will discover if you blow your nose in public that we ain't got a great reputation for personal hygiene, the fact that people will faint if you don't cover your mouth when you cough in a Japanese restaurant, they still see us, I think, subtly as Nambam, as southern barbarians, but... It's encoded within this art. There's only, I think there's only about 60 of them, of these screens that have survived. This wonderful relic of a moment of encounter from an Asian point of view. But it is encoded in later works of Japanese art. I wanted to show you a painting that I didn't know about until we started making this series. It was introduced to me by Julian Bell, one of our consultants, one of the many brilliant, talented people who've been involved in this series. And it's a piece of art that, despite its simplicity, I think shows, I think, what can magically happen when cultures come together. Can we play clip two, please? I think you can tell two things from that clip. One is, I've only got one good suit. Um, <laughs> the other, that no other medium could do that. You wouldn't, from a gallery visit, initially think that that painting is encoded with all of that meaning. But TV, TV can linger. The combination of music, the combination of words, the combination of four-minute clip about one painting. That's what TV, I think, can do in the way that, that no other medium can do. I mentioned earlier that when I was a kid, I never saw African art on, on television, and that I was taken in a sort of slightly pilgrimage way by my mother to see the Benin Bronzes in, in the British Museum, where not all of them should be, in my view. What I didn't realize then, and what I didn't realize for many years later was that the art that my mother was taking us to see as typically, as special African art, art that was created by my father's ancestors is also just as global as the the art of the Japanese 17th century, or the art of the Dutch Golden Age, or of other arts that is, that has the thumbprint of globalization. There's another clip I want to show you about the Benin Bronzes, which is about that, that surprising reality, that art that we often think of as being quintessentially of one culture is often about that culture's global footprint and its encounters with other culture. Can we play the second clip, please? So this is the 16th century mask of Queen Idia. This is one of Nigeria's greatest works of art. It's one of the national treasures, even though there are two of them. One's in London, one's in New York. These are the top of her crown, and these are representations of Portuguese traders. This was made in the 16th century. Part of her power as the Queen Mother is that the Portuguese traders are under her command, that they are part of the world that she is in charge of. This is African art made by African craftsmen, for an African monarch, and in it are depictions of Europeans. In the 19th century, in the 1890s, when Benin was overrun by a British expedition, a punitive raid as punishment for the ambush of a previous British expedition, visitors who came to the British Museum to see an exhibition that included these objects concluded that this was a backward culture that had had no contact with the outside world, that was inward looking that was this forest kingdom that needed to be dragged into the modern age and yet encoded within the art was representations of a previous and somewhat forgotten age in which Europeans and Africans encountered each other in an age of much closer technological and military equity and in, in that age of encounter there had been trade and interaction and cultural synthesis The Benin bronzes, Nigeria's national treasure, much of the metal that was used to make them, which is not actually bronze, it's a copper-rich brass alloy, most of that came from Europe. It was used used as a trading commodity. African art that we think of as quintessentially African is actually far more global than that. Dutch art that we think of as quintessentially Dutch, about the Dutch Golden Age, is much more global than we often think. I think TV can explain these and put forward these arguments in a way that no other medium can do. But when civilizations, Civilization was made in 1969, there were three TV channels. When I watched Artists and Models in the 80s, we were five years away from the Internet. We were 10 years away from the first search engine. Art books were still really expensive just 20 years ago, and you couldn't look up paintings you might have heard about or have come across on the internet, you had to go to galleries, or you had to buy books. I'd never seen any of the paintings I saw in artists and models, which I watched in the 80s. They weren't just a click away, the way that they are now. They were in library books, or they were in galleries. Today, things are profoundly different. You can go on a virtual tour of most of the major art galleries of the world on your phone. If you, I'd recommend have a look at the website of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam It's one of the most sophisticated websites of any art gallery in the world You can find every picture they have on display and all of those that aren't on display by searching through their, their search engine and also by going on, on these virtual tours You can then take any of those pictures or any detail of any corner or any fraction of those pictures and you can have it licensed and you could use it to enlarge it to the size that you could cover one of your walls of your living room with it or you could make it into an iPhone cover or a coaster or a T-shirt. We've never ever had access to art the way that we, we have now. We've never been able to consume it as easily as we can now. So TV's incredibly sophisticated role in, I think, making the case for art has to work within a new environment when we can have the art, we can have access to it in the way that we never could before. And TV itself has changed since Clark made Civilizations and since the BBC made Artists and Models in the 80s to change my life. When Clark said he didn't know what Civilization was in front of the, the, uh, the Seine and Notre Dame in 1968, there were three channels. When I watched Artists and Models there were four, there are now we now don't even know whether channels make sense anymore because there's so much content, there's so much access to, to art, to history, to anything that you want. As long as I've been working in TV, I've always been told that just a few years ago there was a golden age and you just got here too late. You just, <laughs> you just missed it. When I was a researcher in the early, in the early 90s, I was told, so the late 90s, I was told that the, 18, the early 90s had been this golden age and you just missed it. And I'm sure in 10 to 15 years' time, people will look back at television now and say that that was the golden age of TV. Arguably, it is definitely the golden age of TV drama. We've never had as many dramas as we, ha- we have now. We have always told that there was a, a golden age just yesterday, and we've just missed it. And yet, I've always, also always been told, as long as I've been making history and art programs on TV, that the medium's under threat, that people don't want, want to watch it, that people don't care about these things anymore, that we live in an age that's consumerist and superficial and throw away, and that we can't do things like Kenneth Clark anymore. That was a product of a different age. And I think that's to miss the point, because those programs aren't about viewing figures. They aren't about the initial one-night impact. They aren't about the reviews in Tomorrow's Newspapers. They're about changing lives. They're about the tradition that Kenneth Clark created. It's not just a tradition in which people stand in front of paintings and tell you why they're great. They're traditions in which people are delivered culture and civilization and art in a way that impacts upon them, in the ways that hundreds of people have written in and explained, and many dozens of people have explained to me personally, face to face, in a way that I don't think any other medium can do. TV can change lives, and it changed my life in 1986, and it changed the lives of all of the people who have told me how important Kenneth Clark's civilization was to them, but no pressure. (laughs) Thank you for listening, and thank you for inviting me to your city.